Our God has been so wild lately. He doesn't seem to listen, he doesn't obey my commands, and we can't even bribe him with treats. He's gotten so out of hand, he may even have to be put down. God is not the problem here. The problem is the people who want to be the leader of the pack. We reintroduce God. We retrain people. You're listening to The God Whisperers. You're listening to the world-famous God Whispers. I'm Craig D'Onofrio. And I would be Bill Swirla. I don't... I need to... I need to get that Swami. The Swami. Oh. Yeah, I but, don't have the Swami. Well, here. I was going to say, Craig, I, I had a I had a recording. I, I just gave a talk recently, and and, uh, and I just... Here, just listen. This, this is what I had to say. Me is only sitting as me in you. These two only is talking to each other. Understand, I can only talk to me and give my understanding. I cannot talk to anybody else and give my understanding. So the me <laughs> resides in this as me, is residing in all of that as me. So that me, through this me, talking to me. I like your style, dude. <laughs> So before we were recording, you were saying that you think you actually understand this. I do. I do. I, and it made me, when I was listening to him, it made me think of Jim Veltz at the seminary. Oh, yeah, I could see that. Yeah, I remember, n- nobody understood what he had to say either. <laughs> I, I think it's only appropriate that Jim Veltz's book on hermeneutics was entitled, What Does This Mean? Be- because, <laughs> because when people bought it, that was the first question. <laughs> you know, I noticed in I, I noticed this. Insane people are usually convinced that they're so smart no one except them can understand them. That could be. I, I don't know. I'm not <laughs> we're not saying Jim Veltz is insane. He's very smart. He is very smart. Um, and probably insane since he was a professor. And I'm not sure that the is. Swami is insane. He may be very smart too. But I, I connected the two. And and uh, and that's what happens when you take like Veltz's eight hundred level hermeneutics. That's different from the one hundred level hermeneutics that you get in your MDiv studies. You know. Uh, by the way, hermeneutics for those who are playing the home game is the you, art. You just beat me to it. It's yeah. the <laughs> It's the. Uh, you said I was manic. Uh, is the the art of interpretation. The art, yes. of, right? So it's right. the art of interpreting text. How do you how do you interpret a text? Uh, okay, so I've been thinking about this, and I've been meaning to ask on Facebook various people and whatnots. But maybe you know, is there a book that explains sound biblical hermeneutics on a lay level? Do you know of anything? Like yeah, that's that? a great question, and and I don't really know the answer. Um, I have but a e- email us if you know. Of one, I, I have a I have a shelf load of. Um, you know, books that are entitled Biblical Hermeneutics. But one of the big problems with all of those books is that they are really, they should be subtitled How to Get the Right Answer Every Time. Hmm. You know, and, and that's the problem with biblical hermeneutics is that we kind of read the Bible as though it had fallen from the sky on golden plates, and so it gets a special set of hermeneutics. Um, it it's it's a text that needs to be read, you know. Like we, I like to say that God's word comes in human words, 
Uh, that I, by that, I don't mean that it's half God's word and half man's word. It, but, you know, what other words is God supposed to use when he talks to us? Our words, right? So, so we got to read it like our words, and, and that's the art of hermeneutics. So in some senses, it's just simply the art of uh, interpreting a text. Now, of course, the biblical text has, great, has authority, and it's teaching divine spiritual things. But nonetheless, it's still human language, so you got to read it that way. Uh, but I, I don't know of any, uh, any book in biblical hermeneutics. I have some, and okay, look, maybe, the, maybe our, our listeners can, can give us a, a suggestion or two. Yeah, if you know of a good one that's at a lay level, email us at the Godwhispers, uh, rather, Godwhispers at gmail.com. But Jim, Jim Belts was trying to fill that void with his book. You, he, no. He was not trying to make that at a lay level. <laughs> oh, oh, oh! Be- because oh, graduate students are scratching their heads, going, "What?" The? <laughs> no, 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 he's not. Oh, by the way, and I posted it in the lounge that uh, Veltz's course on hermeneutics is actually available. You can watch it for free. Yeah, so, I started so you, watching it uh, before my meeting this morning. So a, you a too, you too can can be as confused as we were. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he makes wonderful points along the way, but in between is a bunch of the swami yeah well yes sometimes sometimes but anyway the swami here's what i think he's saying (laughs) he's saying that when i speak to you i'm speaking to you through the commonality of our humanity a common human understanding in other words i'm not actually speaking to you in some sort of direct hardwired way but i'm speaking to you through uh, our, our collective human experience, and you're hearing me through that collective human experience, which kind of explains why sometimes you'll say, I'll say one thing, but you'll hear something different, you see. And I think that's kind of, at least the beginning, that's what he's saying. Now, that's, that's not much different than reader response criticism, where the author of a text and the reader of the text never meet, but they engage one another through the text. The text is the only place where they meet, but they never meet each other face to face. And so the author has in mind a, a, a reader, a hearer, an audience. And the reader has in mind an author. But what's in their mind and what actually is may not be the same thing. See, and so that's kind of the, that's the interesting thing of reader response criticism. It takes seriously the fact that we're engaging one another through a text which in an odd way is really uh, what Scripture is about, is where God is engaging us through the means, an ordinary means, like he always works, uh, of a text. See? Right, and, and part of the struggle is it's a 2,000-plus-year-old text. At, well, and, ver- various dates. You know, what do you got? Uh, in our canon, the Protestant canon's got like uh, 66 books, right? Right. Maybe 30 authors, if we know them. We don't even know most of the yeah, authors. That's why I said 2,000 plus is is like the most recent the the most recent writings are about 2000 years old right so 19 something something people kind of sometimes forget they think the bible right. is like so, one so book we like know? to read it in a 21st century context and then we start screaming oh it says that well, slavery is okay or something <laughs> yeah. you know it's like we we start putting our 
our our modern day context uh, over it. Yeah, yeah. And we do violence to it that way. And and that's yeah. but and that's always the challenge. The other challenge is it's sixty six books. Uh, yes, it is a hymn book, the Psalms. It's a book of uh, smart things to say, like Proverbs, you know? Yeah. And, and there's all kinds of stuff. The Ecclesiastes, there's a, book Poetry, that it, yeah. there's a book that doesn't even mention God, you know? The book of Esther never mentions God once. So, you know... And the, the Song of Solomon's kind of a how-to manual. <laughs> <laughs> I, I call that biblical erotica, you know. Uh, but, or, you know, if you're a Middle Eastern guy, you sort of get it, but the Western right. man just doesn't, just doesn't right. see, you know, your, your teeth are like sheep on the hills of Hermon. You know, it's like, yeah, whatever. I what? love the cartoon on, on uh, oh, the internet. Of, that, of the actual yeah, woman, that, yeah, that takes the text in a literal sense, and it, <laughs> it's just this Frankenstein freak thing is... Well, th- yeah. this is all kind of, I suppose, you know, you can tell by our conversation. I mean, I think this is all kind of um, prelude to this really unfortunate dust-up that uh, the manly doctors got themselves involved in uh, a couple of episodes there, ago. Mr., uh, no, Mr. It's, 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 our, it's our show, and, <laughs> and we, uh, we interviewed a, a pastor, a retired pastor from the Lutheran Church in Canada, Lutheran Church Canada, uh, Terry Defoe. Uh, who'd written a book uh, that kind of, you know, charts out the uh, various issues of, of uh, the various views of creationism and creation and science and, and all of that. And, and it just kind of like exploded uh, on us uh, on the Internet. And I don't know about you, but I, I feel bad about the explosion. I don't feel bad about the episode, but I, I, f- I feel bad about the aftermath. And uh just trying to understand that whole thing. We did get a lot of a uh, lot of nice letters and yeah. and yeah, uh, IMs. My IM box was just full of people um, writing concerns. Some some people were confused. Uh, many people were thanking thanking us uh, for even just just like talking about it. Uh, yeah, I got it was probably mailbag mu- music, so I forgot that. Let's go to the mailbag. There we go. Hey, the God Whispers mailbag brought to you by the Swami Swirla. <laughs> I need to get one of those those orange robes. I think those are really cool. Um, it's a, a new cassock. <sighs> yeah, right, right, right. Um, but do you wear it on the third Sunday of Advent? That's really the key. I, I don't I don't know the answer to that. But anyway, this is actually from a pastor um, friend of mine. Uh, who writes, uh, and I'm going to edit this a little bit. Hi, uh, the eldest uh, fruit of mine loins. When have the wow. last time you've ever heard fruit of mine loins? I wear fruit of the loom sometimes. No, fruit of mine loins. Uh, graduated from <laughs> University of British Columbia, et cetera, et cetera, with a Bachelor of Science. Uh, he's listened to some of your shows, loves the discussion, has tons of questions about the intersection of faith and science. Uh, he's not on Facebook anymore. <laughs> he's probably smart for that. Yes. Uh, and so I've been kind of copying and pasting various things for him. And then he, he goes on. He says, "I don't know. I, don't, I know you have a lot to do, but there's is there a possibility you could talk to him about some of these matters? Um, you and I tend to think similarly about these issues, and I'm constantly reminding him, as you do, to keep it all Christ-centered, uh, which I think is really you know." That was kind of supposed to be the take-home lesson, is to keep it all Christ-centered. Yes, but, uh, that I somehow got so. lost in the kerfuffle. So anyway, that, <laughs> that's kind of... I had a lot, and I was going to read a lot of letters, but, but I thought, no, you know, some people are just... Some people are upset, some people are angry, some people are confused. And there's, there's a lot of emotion yeah. 
And and emotion in the internet, boy, that's like nitro and glycerin, isn't it? <laughs> See, I'm I'm kind of like this. Uh, I, I I'm kind of like a medic in a war zone on this. You know, I'm I'm kind of a non-combatant in the middle of the whole thing, looking around trying to figure out what the heck's going on. But <laughs> all I know is there are a bunch of bleeding people. Yeah, there's bodies everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> so I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah just, you know, the, and I think this is what happens when you try to button things down really tight. You, you start the equi- your local equivalent of the Thirty Years' War. You yeah, know, it's like <laughs> it's like the bloodiest war there ever was, and and at least part of it was over doctrine. Now, you know, a lot of it was over land grabs too let's be honest There's, all wars are really about land grabs but but you know it, it's it's right in the mix but i think whenever people get emotional and they get on the internet like crazy things happen yeah we've talked about this sort of thing before where people are willing to do and say things on the internet that they would never do or say to your face. You know, I had a great example of that um, earlier this week is that I, I sat down and had coffee with, with somebody who's, I consider a friend, but very often on the internet we're adversaries. And and um, it was such a different conversation over coffee in a nice plush chair in a very yeah. comfortable coffee lounge. And it was pleasant. It was brothers. And, and you know, it was really, it was really, really cool. And at the end of that, we were just really thankful that we had that opportunity and we, we didn't agree on everything politically or even theologically, but, but there was a kind of a sense of, of we're in this together kind of thing. Because when you look around that coffee house, I probably think we were probably the only two Christians in the room. Hmm. Um, but, but, you know, it was kind of cool. Whereas on the internet, we're constantly sniping each other and doing stuff. And it kind of makes me think is, you know, is, is the medium, is the medium part of the message? Marshall McLuhan is the medium healthy. Uh, for this, especially no, in, in not, the... not for this. Well, I don't, I don't think that social media. You, look, people go on to Facebook and Twitter, and they think I'm going to change other people's minds, and all they do is rally people who agree with them to agree, and rally those who disagree with them to scream bloody murder. And it's just a really, really bad uh, medium for debate. Yeah, it, it's and... a great medium. For posting race cars and kittens and puppies and <laughs> now you're talking uh, recipes. S- I I think we need to be clear. I mean, you're talking social media. Social media, yeah. You know, sometimes I talk Facebook. to my mom who's 89 and she thinks that the internet is of the devil. You know, that's that a little bit like is, saying yeah. Guten, Gutenberg was of the devil. You know, the printing press made the Reformation possible, and I think the internet uh, brings a lot of information to our fingertips. You know, you can go and, and view a lot of the Vatican Library for free online. I didn't know that. Yeah, you can. They're scanning. They're scanning like the whole Vatican Library. You got a bunch of, you know, basically priests with nothing to do, uh, just scanning everything, which I think is really awesome. <laughs> you, you can, you, you know, you know what the Weimar edition of Luther's works is, right? Right. Yes, yeah. the, it's the, the critical German Latin. It's, it's like the most comprehensive collection. Uh, and they're still, they're still, collecting that they're not done yet that guy just like he had diarrhea the fountain pen oh gosh <laughs> i've i've often said it would be amazing what luther could have done with a macbook oh yeah yeah but but, but the the head crazy. librarian at at uh, the fort wayne library tipped me off on there's a there's an internet weimar edition and really and yeah and and it's scanned they've just scanned it in it's not the full collection but it's pretty good 
And if you know what you're looking for, and you can read Fraktur Deutsch, you know that that funny oh, yeah. the that funny German. Saturday. Yeah, oh yeah. Um, you can actually, you know, it spares you a trip to the, the closest Weimar around by me. I think is at USC, hmm. and that's endless traffic. It's just a whole day just now, to that, get that there. That has not know. been completely translated into English, right? No, well, no, no. Why no. not? Uh, interest, money, time, whatever you know. It's, it seems like he, there are dozens of Lutherans that would pay for that. You know, the amazing thing is, you know, we don't live or die by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of Luther, you know, no, and, no. and some of the stuff is probably best left untranslated. Well, yeah, you know, there's <laughs> even a lot that's been translated into English where we kind of do a face palm. And you, you know, it's kind of funny. In, in some ways, um, you know, what we do on a podcast or what we do in, like, comment stream conversation is like Luther's table talk. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. it's raw, it's unfiltered, and do you really want to be held to every syllable? No, of course not. And we often talk about our bowels. <laughs> well, <laughs> or we have flarp, <laughs> you know. So, you know, I, I, I got to thinking, I, I think the Internet's a really good thing. It's our, it's our modern Gutenberg. And, and uh, you know, I've been able to download... Oh, don't, you're getting out the flarp. I hear it. Yeah, yeah. All right, thanks. <laughs> I'm getting for... it warmed up. There we go. <laughs> Getting it warmed up in that sound is just not good. Okay. Is it... So um, now we're what? See what you did? See what you did? Oh, you, you, you were saying that we're like table talk. We and, are table and, talk. Yeah. We're the car talk of theology. And, and I think part of what went off the rails on the Terry Defoe episode was that, that especially me, because you know me, I, is we got conversational. And when you get conversational, you kind of even forget you're doing this, you know. And uh, it's it's just how it is. We're not conducting we're not conducting just a raw interview, you know. Here, Terry, here's these ten questions I'm going to ask. Let me ask them. Oh, I've never read your book, but uh, tell us about your book, and I'll pretend that I read it. So, you know, so we're talking about it. We've all read it, and uh, or I have. I don't know if you have, but nope. and anyway, so. And I guess, you know, it's a sensitive topic, obviously, because um, we live in a scientific age. We, we live in, in an age where science really dominates our worldview, even if we're not scientists. And, uh, and so it, it's kind of a threat uh, to, to some people. And, and unfortunately, it's a threat to our college students. And as this, this letter that I read indicated, um, if our college students are studying in the sciences, um, it can be a real stumbling block, and and that's kind of that's my energy for this. Is I I used to be there, and my my head is still there. So, uh, but this social media is not the place to to do this. It really isn't. And you know what you know what bothers me the most? I think of all of it is that I had a an old pastor, very wise pastor, say to me once. He says he says you know you guys, uh, the way you treat each other. On, on social media and stuff, you wouldn't treat your parishioners this way. And, he, and his comment that stuck with me was, he says, uh, pastors need to be more pastoral toward other pastors because your people are watching this. What a, what a you know, and I, I don't have any comeback for that. Yeah. Well, it kind of whacks you between the eyes, doesn't it? Well, it's a, be, rem it's a reminder. It's, it's easy to knee-jerk. It's just, you know, when people are being hostile and being ugly, it's easy to knee-jerk and, and, you know, do the I know I am, but what are you kind of, you know, knee-jerk reaction. 
But uh, see, I, I think the yeah. problem with social media is that everything becomes this zero sum game. It's I win, you lose. It, it's always and it's always fought to that end. I have to be the winner in this comment stream or this whatever I'm doing. I win, you lose. I'm right, you're wrong. You know what's funny is is that even in my little tiki groups on Facebook, you know, the tiki home bar builds and and just tiki appreciation kind of groups every now and then you get someone who's like that's not real tiki yeah right that's or not that's authentic not tiki. tiki that's not authentic you, you know, know it's like yeah, you know where this i is just goofy fun for crying out loud you know and this that you know that's not even remotely important as to if this is bona fide 1940s Les Baxter tiki <laughs> kind of thing or you know i mean it's like get over it but you know, a thousand times more, more so with something that counts, like theology. Oh well, yeah, and, and uh, yeah, that's not to say that's a it's a hobby or it's not serious. It's the most serious thing we have. But yeah, but, but uh, uh, do we really have to go there? It, it, you know, it descends the... down to that level. You yeah. know, you know where I've seen it. I, there are two interest groups that I that I, I spend spend probably too much time in. Well, three, because uh, I have a lot of interests. But one is bread making. Okay, and and the same thing happens. That's not real sourdough. You're using commercial yeast. <laughs> right, right. It's like, oh, what is wrong with I you? I can't believe that you would use that flour. I'm right. offended. And then, and then in woodworking, you have a, a a binary polarity between what are called the 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 luddites or the Neanderthals, and the Normites, named after Norm Abram of uh, of um, the New Yankee Workshop. So the, the, the Luddites or the Neanderthals are the ones who insist that the only true woodworking is using hand tools. Oh, yeah. See, if, if, yeah. If, if you plug it in, you've, you, violated, you violated the canons of woodworking. And on the other side are the guys who just can't get enough power tools. You know, if, you're, if, if your electrical meter isn't spinning 100 miles an hour, you're just not doing real woodworking. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, most oh, of yeah, us... Okay, so mo- I've, I've even gotten a dose of this from you when, when I say I'm going to go to Harbor Freight and get a router. That's right. Something. Oh, those suck. And you're like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe... You know, and it, but I'm only going to use it for one job. One time, and, yeah. And then you're like, oh, well, then it'll probably be okay for that. But, you know, anything more than 40 hours of use, that thing's going to just die on the, you. The, the, other, the other place that you see it, and I'm sure we, this is one where we, we cross, uh, you know, where we, we, uh, our, our Venn diagram overlaps is barbecue. Yes. Go, go to any barbecue site, and oh my word, I've never seen such the gas dog- versus the charcoal. Such people. dogma, such narrow dogmatism is: you use gas, that's not real barbecue. Well, you, are you using hardwood? You use a is Traeger. Use a Traeger. Get real, dude. You know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's like you, you know, I'm, I'm cooking food, and it's delicious, and I'm enjoying it. Like, right. like, what's wrong with you? But, but I think we have this inherent tendency to polarize and dogmatize all over the place. And and so, I think naturally, if if you take a theological discussion into that kind of a mosh pit, it's gonna it'll descend into that same thing. You know, I'm a little concerned right now. <laughs> about- <laughs> Your salvation and stuff. <laughs> How come you have not been baptized? <laughs> because I never got around to it, okay? I don't know why you always have to be judging me. Because I only believe in science. <laughs> <laughs> it's really good. 
so you know, and and but, I think but that's what it comes down to is you know if if you want to if you want to talk about science, oh my goodness, you know sometimes you know there are forbidden topics. So here's a couple of lessons that I learned from our dust up at least is you know one what the old pastor guy said to me is is pastors need to be more pastoral to other pastors. I think sometimes we're hard on the members of our guild. You know, it's like like old con- like construction workers. You know, you call that plumbing square, you idiot. You know, that's that's fine. That's fine over beers. You know, right. in 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 the closed company like pastors' conferences, when you really know people. But even then, I I think we could maybe um, exhibit a little bit more of the fruit of the spirit instead of the works of the flesh when we're talking theology. It might be healthy. Um, the other thing that I notice is arrogance, which that's, this is like my key weakness. You know, I get really impatient with people when I'm trying to say what I'm thinking and they don't get it. So I just assume they're stupid. And, and, and then I get, then I pounce on them. I brain dump on them and it's really bad. I feel real bad when I do that because I don't give people a chance to kind of catch up with my thoughts. And, uh, my wife always tells me about this. You're brain dumping again, you know? And I do it to you. I do it to you. And, well, and I, you, you know, with me, it's it's the, uh, you know, I'm on this track, and it's something that I've been reading for the last month, and you have you've never seen it, and uh, I can't understand why you're not tracking with. Me well, you know, and that's kind of I think part of the problem <laughs> when people like Terry or me or, or anybody. There's lots of people in in within the Lutheran Church and within Christianity who are talking science and faith. There's some new podcasts coming out too. I'm not sure if I want to advertise them or not, but uh, there is the conversation is big. But I have literally been at this for my adult life. You know, I started in science, but I was a believer, and I was a really interested believer, too. You know, I'd read the Book of Concord before I went to the seminary. Right. Um, I studied Greek on my own uh, in order to go to the seminary, and, and I had really good pastors uh, who, you know, kind of took me into the inner sanctum and gave me hard books to read and, and made me think. And uh, and I'm indebted to them. They they respected my science, and uh, they invited me into the world of theology. And they themselves were kind of out of the box sort of thinkers too, which inspired me to go to the seminary. I thought, hey, if there's room for my pastor, uh, the one guy I'm thinking of particularly was a Springfield graduate who's really really good. And uh, I said, there, if there's room for him, there's maybe room for me too. I thought, you know, and. Uh, but, you know, that, things have changed a little bit, I think, over the last, um, what is it now, 40 years or so? It's been a long time. Mm, yeah. But arrogance, you know, I think when you think back to, like, the, the dark days of the 70s in the Synod, there were certainly theological issues or doctrinal issues, but there's a lot of arrogance. And I think arrogance was the fuel that, that caused, the, caused things to explode. When people are so dug in and won't talk and just hurl... Uh, categories and names and and condemnations across a moat. Um, there's really going to be no conversation at the coffee house anymore. It's over. Well, and th- this is a struggle within our profession as as pastors because a even the e- even the dimmest bulbs among us have have a good education. Uh, hey, we all have post college. We are post college right, educated. Right. I mean, we're we're at the top five percent educationally, right there. And and not just that, but we're pastors, so we're used to being kind of a leader. We're used to, uh, you know, instructing people, and we're, we're used to teaching. But 
we sometimes lose track, especially when dealing with when dealing with people who are not our parishioners, that this is a servant position. It we, is. We are the most well-educated mater d's that you'll ever meet. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a guy going to the finest cooking school in the world and then bussing tables right. or, or waiting tables right. or or working at a short order at at some kind of short order diner, slinging hash. You know, he can make the finest of French and Italian cuisine, and what he's doing is turning out hash. Right. Every week. That's, what, so, that's what Robert so Capon says that preaching is. He, maybe, says, he says, you're some guy with, in a T-shirt with a pack of cigarettes rolled up in your sleeve, slinging hash Sunday after Sunday. <laughs> and, and maybe you're, uh, you know, kind of used to being abused by those who sit at your tables. Uh, you know, the, the service isn't good enough and so forth and so on. And then you turn around and visit a restaurant and do the same darn thing. Well, you know, it's, it's almost like. Or, or to push the analogy a little bit, if you've ever worked in a kitchen, and I have, um, the, the banter in a kitchen is rough. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the language is bad. It's 120 degrees in there, and you got a bunch of big egos and sharp knives. And, <laughs> and you, you, you know, but there, there's, there's also a band of brothers, there's a, there's a blood brotherhood in that kitchen, too. There is. And, but the thing is, you don't bring that act out into the dining room, or no. you're going to have an empty dining room pretty soon. See, in other words, save, save the cussing, save, save the, the knives, save, save the screaming and yelling for behind those double doors in the kitchen. Um, and don't ever let the patrons hear it, because the dining room's getting empty. And, and I think it's getting empty because the chefs are arguing in public and they're not happy about it, you know? So, you know, the, the, the old Seinfeld soup Nazi and, and uh, <laughs> no soup for you, <laughs> you, you know, but he, the, the, the point is it's funny, but the point is if you actually had someone that was that big of a jerk, it doesn't matter how good your soup would be. People would still go. Well, there's. There, I'm not going. That guy's a jerk. There's one going. exception that I noted. Well, and I'm not sure that's the case because it could be part of the um, the performance art. So uh, the soup Nazi is is modeled after a real guy in New York. Serious. Yeah, and there's a guy in San Francisco. There's a restaurant in San Francisco. It's a Chinese restaurant that is noted for the rudest service in San Francisco's Chinatown. And Chinese, I maybe have been there. Chinese service is not known to be, uh, like, really epically good. <laughs> the most genteel. But here's the funny thing. Um, and I don't know if it's still true anymore. I don't even know if they're open anymore. I don't remember their name, but I do know about the restaurant. Um, people would line up for blocks, and they'd want this waiter just to be insulted by him. <laughs> And, and you'd, you'd order, and especially if you were white and English-speaking, didn't speak Chinese, you'd order something, and you'd go, no, you don't want that. You know, no. No, I, I'm not even bringing that to you. And he'd bring you whatever. He'd never brought you what you ordered, and people loved it. It was, it was, part, it was part of the performance. You know? uh, okay, okay. I, I admit you're right on this, because one of the best experiences I've ever had was in Chinatown, uh, our friend Gary, who used to be one of your parishioners, yeah, uh, no, I was I, up there with him, and that's home turf for him. <laughs> and he took us to this place, and I wish I could find it because it was a three-story restaurant, and each floor was maybe a 15-by-15-foot room. I mean, it's tiny. And this little Chinese woman takes you up there. She's probably four foot nine. And she says, you sit there. You not sit there. And, and she just, <laughs> you know, and... 
And, uh, and, just, and she, she just, just I incredibly mean, she, rude. Yeah, she ran it like she was a dictator. <laughs> and the food was fantastic and inexpensive. But, you know, but she was just a riot just just to, you know, be around her because she's yelling at all the customers. And, yeah, I, I do and, have to say that if you're going to go down that route, your food had better be darn oh, yeah. good. Yeah, better good. than anybody on the block. because Yeah, it, and, the, <laughs> and the food comes up in a dumbwaiter, and she's like yelling down the dumbwaiter at the staff, you know, she's like screaming at them. <laughs> she probably owns She probably owns the place. Yeah, she, she probably does. Yeah, yeah. The, the, yeah the, but it was actually a fantastic, and we were just in stitches because she's just over the top. But I, I think this 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 idea, this it's my take-home lesson, is, is is that we pastors, you know, you and I are pastors, we need to be more pastoral towards yes, one do. another. Uh, and as pastoral as we are toward our people. And and then in turn, also, I think our people and everybody, because you know, a lot of the people in GW Nation are lay people. Some of them are outside of the LCMS or they're outside of Lutheranism, they, but they're listening in. And, you know, I think we should encourage everybody who's baptized believer in Jesus, who has the Holy Spirit, uh, to show forth the fruit of the Spirit, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-discipline. Um, Paul says there's no law about these things, <laughs> and these things are fruit. This is what the Spirit works in us, and we can expect to see it. But the old Adam gets in the way of that. And, and I think sometimes when we get all heated, whether over Republican versus Democrat or this candidate versus that candidate or some theological thing we're talking about, Things get heated, we get on social media, and all of a sudden the old Adam seizes it. And seeking to justify himself, he just starts lashing out. And Because and, a lot of this is self-justification. Look at me, look at how right I am, look at how wrong that other guy is. I thank God every day I'm not like that publican in the back. Hmm. <laughs> you know, I, We have to recognize the old Adam for who he is and what he does. He's us. Right. You know, so if you're a Republican, old Adam's a Republican and really proud of it and is convinced that all Democrats are going to hell and 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 is justified in condemning all Democrats to hell ahead of time, you know, and save God the trouble, right? You know, and and vice versa. If if you're if you're a progressive liberal, you you think everybody who's conservative uh is is just evil incarnate, you know, obviously. And uh and so you condemn them and feel justified for being progressive. This old Adam is whatever we are in a, self, yeah. in a self-oriented yeah. way. In well, the, the, um, it's the yeah. me, the me, the me, yeah. like the Swami says, the me. I always preach the Pharisees as we Pharisees <laughs> because, because they keep turning everything in on themselves. And that's what we do. We're, we're you know, idolaters as first... First Commandment issue. Well, I wanted you know, to say First Amendment issue because you were talking about politics. Uh, sorry, I, I didn't mean to confuse the kingdoms. Yeah, you got me on uh, <laughs> on the Constitution instead of the Bible. You know, you, you mentioned the Pharisees, and I think sometimes, and I, I think you're right. Kenneth Corby used to always say, when when you read Pharisee in the Gospel, think religious person, think you. Right. Okay. Because these are not the secularists. These are not the people wandering around out there, you know, going to brunch on Sunday morning. No, these are the quote-unquote good people. These are blue-chip religious people. Yeah. And, and what are the Pharisees into? It's kind of an interesting discussion. Uh, the, the Pharisees are into codifying the Torah. Uh, you know, basically, as Paul indicates in Romans, the, 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 the false misleading dream was that the Torah was a Torah of works. That's what Paul learned as a Pharisee. 
Right. And, and so if the Torah is a Torah of works and the kingdom of God is brought about by our works, then somebody better catalog what the works are that we need to be doing to, work, to do the works of God, right? So, so that's the big question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must we do to be doing the works of God? And so the Pharisees come up with 613 works to do out of, out of the Torah, do's and don'ts, you know? Right. And, and 32 kinds of work you can't do to rest on the Sabbath, that sort of thing. And, and Paul in Romans basically says, in all this, in all this doing and all this building of their fence and protecting purity of the Torah, they missed the point of the Torah, that the Torah is a Torah of faith. <laughs> and not of works. In fact, we uphold Torah by faith. And that's, that's Roman's big thesis. And so, so it's kind of funny. It, trying to protect Torah, they miss the central point. You know, it, it's interesting. Andy Bartelt was out here speaking at our, our pastor's conference. And of course on Isaiah, because that's what he does. But um, he, he was kind of just kibitzing and, and talking about the the people before Christ, their faith wasn't just in the coming Savior, the, the Messiah that would come, but looking back into the fathers of, you know, Abraham and his offspring and, and on back, their faith was in a God who over and over again redeems his people. And, and so that, that redemption is that narrative that continues on back to the beginning of the Bible and, and the faith of those who were saved in the Old Testament. It wasn't just the hope of the coming Messiah, but it was also the promise of the God that keeps redeeming sinners. Yeah, that's it was, a re it was really interesting. That's a, that's a great point, because otherwise it's, it's entirely future-oriented. Yeah. So, so they're just kind of stumbling and bumbling around in the wilderness and the promised land, kind of really not knowing what they're doing, and, you know, like Solomon marrying 900 women and just kind of like doing their stuff. And, and it's all kind of like a sort of a pie-in-the-sky, by-and-by Messiah. One day, you know, the age to come, it'll all be better, blah, blah, blah. That's not what it's about. If you look at the very beginnings of the Bible, um, it's like a program of monotheism, really. Uh, you know, one of the tasks of Israel was to get rid of the deities. Hmm. You know, like they go into the Canaan. What are they supposed to do when they take over the land of Canaan? Smash all the, all the Baals, take down all the sacred groves, um, and purge the Baals and the Asherahs and the Molechs out of the land. Because, you know, what, what they're encountering is they're encountering um, a culture where everything is deity. You know, they, the, the, the stars were gods, the sun and moon were gods, the wind was God, the sea was God, everything was God. And, and so what they were doing was they, they, the, the, the program was to clear out the gods because there's only one, the maker of heaven and earth, the redeemer of Israel, Yahweh. Proclaim the name of Yahweh to the nations and get rid of, you, know, you know, you shall have no other gods in my presence. Purge yourselves and the land and indeed the world of these false deities. They're getting in the way. I am the only true God. Louis just flarped. 
<laughs> that could he's, be bad. He's next to me. I'm he's sorry. I'm very sorry. Uh, <laughs> but but you see you see what I'm saying is is that it, this is absolutely correct. The the right. the promise the promise salvation Christ in the Old Testament is the name. It's the yeah. name. It's God's presence among His people. It's Gosh. God's it's God's presence in the temple and the priestly people of Israel. And their task is basically to proclaim the name of Yahweh, not as a local deity or not as Israel's national deity, but as the one true God on who, who is the maker and the redeemer. He's the creator of heavens, heaven and earth, and he is the redeemer of his people, Israel. This is one of those things that, and going back to biblical hermeneutics, the interpretation of Scripture, <laughs> uh, you know, always and, and dangerous two, business. Yeah, between the two seminaries, there there are a couple different schools of thought on this. But you know, we were kind of taught uh, typology that that there are types of Christ throughout the Old Testament that that prophecies have multiple meanings. Of course, ultimately fulfilled in Christ, but. They also have a local, more immediate meaning a lot of the time, and th- and that sort of thing, and so it's it's just one of those things. And I don't even remember where I was going with this. Now yeah, I don't even know why you're bringing it up, but but maybe we could <laughs> could could we kind of shelve it for a future show? I think we should because but, I but just I lost think, my train of thought. Yeah, but but in this context here, let let me just kind of like put something out there to think about. Um, that is a matter of interpretation. You know, and and we don't like have any doctrine or dogma about what the right interpretation is. Uh, the New Testament guides us sometimes. So, for example, um, when uh, the Holy Family goes into hiding in Egypt and then comes back out of Egypt uh, to take up residence in Nazareth, uh, Matthew says in his gospel that these things occurred so that the, 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 the word of the prophet might be fulfilled, out of Egypt I've called my son. Okay, now he's quoting Hosea 11.1. 1. Out of Egypt I've called my son. So the question is, what's the referent of that? Uh, when Hosea said it, he was looking backward to the Exodus, because Israel is the son of God. It even says, it says so in Deuteronomy. So, so God's son is Israel, and out of Egypt he called his son into, through the water, into the wilderness, to the promised land. And so Hosea is kind of preaching to the nation and saying, remember the wilderness. That's where God is going to call you back to the wilderness, and he's going to woo you like, like, like a, you know, a young man in love. He's going to, going to go back to those courtship days, and, and he's going to woo you. Um, and, but he, he, he says, out of Egypt I've called my son. Matthew sees it, and the referent is different. The referent is Jesus. Out of Egypt mm-hmm. I've called my son. So which is right. it? See, we don't, we don't dogmatically assert it's Jesus only or it's Israel only, but we say, well, it's both, because Israel is typologically Jesus, and Jesus is antitype of Israel. He's one man Israel. He's Israel as one man. See, and, and so it works, but you don't, you don't sort of dogmatize the interpretation. Where am I heading with this? Um, when we interpret a text, uh, we're always looking really at three things. I think three things. Uh, the one is what the meaning of the words are. And that's where, that's where we talk about plain and literal sense, things like that. Um, we talk about the referent. What's the text referring to? Uh, and that's a question here. Is it referring to Christ or is it referring to Israel and the Exodus? 
And then there's a, a third question where we usually kind of jump, maybe prematurely, and that's what's the theological significance of the text? Because it, it, that's a little different than saying what does the text refer to or what do the words mean? I mean, ultimately, you have to come up with some theological significance. How does it fit in to the big revelation of God's salvation history in Christ? Because that's why we have it. That's why we have the book of Esther. What's the theological significance of the book of Esther? It's a good question. You, you mentioned the referent, and sometimes we miss the fact that uh, bringing my son out of Israel or out of Egypt or whatever, um, that sometimes it's a both and. and Very often it's a both and. Uh, that's that's it, kind of one of the things that drew me into Lutheran theology is that it isn't just our... It isn't just our understanding of the Bible that's sometimes a both and, but sometimes our, our questions of salvation that's a both and. Well, you know, here's when the, we ask these either or questions, sometimes it's yes. Here's here's the pro, or here's the thing about the both and. So you take a prophet who's stuck somewhere in the the few hundreds BC, okay, four hundred to whatever eight hundred time of the prophets, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they are preaching to a to a people, a bunch of Israelites. And they're preaching the Torah. So they're interpreting Torah to the people. They're proclaiming Torah to the people. And um, they're going to say stuff that sounds both present and future-oriented. So they'll say things that speak to the present circumstances, whether it be a war, a famine, a whatever. Like Joel, you know, plague of locusts. Okay, so they're going to speak to this issue of the plague of locusts. But in so speaking, they're going to say it in such a way that it can refer to something else, too, at the same time, you see. So does it refer to a plague of locusts? Yes. Does it refer to something else? Yes. And the something else in fulfillment is always greater than the initial historic referent, see. And so, but this is how prophecy works. Otherwise, what the prophet says to the people at the time he says it will make no sense to the people. They'll say, yeah, that's nice, you know, go get another Coke. <laughs> but it's got to make sense to the first hearers. It's got to be in, in their context, in their idiom, in their cultural melu, the whole thing. It's got it's to make sense, or they would have kicked it out. They, they wouldn't, it wouldn't have given them any comfort, anything to work with. But we, on the other side of the cross of Jesus, knowing the outcome, we can look at those texts and we can see a, a referent and a significance far greater than the original thing. And that's what's cool about the Scriptures. I think that's, what, that's where the inspiration of Scripture really comes into play, is how these disparate texts and various authors and all this time weave into this beautiful tapestry of salvation in Christ, see? And I think the New Testament guides us in that many ways. But it, that's a question of referent. And, but we don't sort of like draft a, some sort of doctrinal resolution that this prophecy must refer to this and nothing else. Uh, that, that would be like, that, that, that'd be the end game right there. Then you cut off all of Israel or you cut off the church, whichever way you vote, I suppose, right? <laughs> hey, I got, a, I got a thought. As long as we're on yep. this roll, and it's a good roll, I, I, you know, um, why don't, we, why don't we talk a little bit about the nature of theology, what theology is, okay? Because uh, in, in some episodes past, I think I've heard you say, uh, theology is the queen of the sciences, right? Well, 
At least it was 500 years ago. <laughs> I don't know when they said that. <laughs> I, I, I think it was, you know, at, at, there, at, in the medieval university, there were three graduate schools. There was law, there was medicine, and there was theology. And that was it, you know. The, the, and the science didn't exist because the, the, the true age of science really begins with Copernicus and the scientific, or the, astro- the, uh, the astronomical revolution, which the church had a little trouble with, if you remember Galileo and the Catholic Church. So, you know, <laughs> had a little I trouble just... adjusting to that. But, uh, but that's really science at its beginning. But I think there's a sense where it's true that theology is a science. Well, there was, there was alchemy and all sorts of, you know, I mean... Yeah, alchemy's not a science. And, ph- and physics and all that beforehand. Uh, but, you know, uh, they had alchemy and astrology, but you see, those still kind of held to this, this weird notion of superstition, that there were dark forces or there were forces at work in the natural order, and, now, we, I've, and, I've we, could, and we could manipulate those natural forces. I've heard that Calvin and Luther both considered astrology to be science. Well, maybe in of their day, the, right. the, the, yeah, and you know, I, I think because it got crossed over into the study of stars and and heavenly bodies or whatever. Well, right? the one of the first worshippers of Jesus were a bunch of astrologers, so right. you know. Uh, but but that's not kind of the point because our notion of how the world works is way different. So our notion right. of science is sure. is a kind of a a, a a naturalistic method. So we, we just look at natural causes and effects. But see, they weren't there yet. They were still looking at dark forces, demons, perhaps. You know, the disease was caused by demons. Um, or, you know, there, there are all these kind of like forces, whether good or benevolent or bad, kind of at work in the world. And, you know, could we manipulate the forces? And they had mistaken ideas like garlic juice demagnetizing iron, which was a commonplace in, in medieval alchemy. It's all over the place. It wasn't new to Luther. Um, but, but you know, it, it's theolo- funny, look, looking at these sorts of things, and it, as recent as the early 1800s, um, people made statements like if if a woman went over 50 miles an hour, she would become sterile. You know, it's like things like this. Where wh- where do you get these ideas exactly? Yeah, well, that's the old, you know, step on a crack, break your mother's back kind of. <laughs> kind of. Super, superstition is is really kind of the, the vestige of that because superstition assumes that there are sort of forces at work that can be manipulated. So when I step up to the plate and make the sign of the Holy Cross... Um, I'll hit a home run because there's a connection between that sacred symbol and my batting ability. And you see, like, baseball players are very superstitious. Oh, Ga- yeah. Gamblers, yeah, so. gamblers are very superstitious because yeah. they're trying to manipulate luck right. in their favor. You know, I'm feeling lucky today. You know, luck, it, is, it, luck is random statistics. Luck is chance. You know, it, it has nothing to do with anything you do, but we think it does. And so... It, it makes us feel special if we think we can manipulate the forces of nature. <laughs> I'm told that churches in Las Vegas do very well. Yeah, I'll bet. Because people are trying to bribe God, you know, kind of thing. But, but theology, <laughs> you know, break it down. Theos logos. It's, 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 the, it's God words. Theos is God. Logos is words. Logoi. It's words about God. It's God words. And so theology is not the study of God. We sometimes get confused. We think biology is the study of life and zoology is the study of zoos or whatever. And, and anthropology is the study of man. 
So theology must be the study of God, but God isn't a, a topic or a subject to be studied. That's we, you know, the creature can't study the creator. That's, that's out of bounds. But we can study the texts he has given us or the text through which he's revealed himself to us. So pr- actually, to be very accurate, theology is, is the study of God words or, or God texts, or as we say, the scriptures. And so, so it's really about, theology is really about the, the interpretation and the study of Scripture. Christian yeah. theology is, anyway. Yeah, but it is also the study of things that we can know about God, of course. From the Scriptures. As, yeah, as, as Lutherans, we, we say, well, that comes from Scripture. So you, yeah, the, you, you, can't you, know, you, you can't know anything about a supernatural thing unless the supernatural thing right. tells you something about him. <laughs> It's now, true. I guess this would be a good point also to, to talk about there is a general revelation of God. You know, this is the, I went out into the wilderness and things were so beautiful, there had to be a God. You know, th- this sort of thing. But then there is that that special revelation that comes only through God's Word, the specific of God's Word. And so you might come to the conclusion that there's a God, but you're not going to understand the cross of Christ and the atonement just by, you know, going out and walking in the mountains. Yeah, you know, that, that kind of gets back to a period, you know, 18th century or so, where, see, the the age of science really kind of created some difficulties for the church, because the church ruled the roost for a long time. And then astronomy, and then geology, and then biology come along, and, and it kind of really upsets the apple cart. So there was an attempt... Uh, yeah, by the way, curiously, most most of the early scientists were believers. They 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 were they were Christians for the most part. Although there are other believe when I say believer, I just mean believer in a God. Uh, but you know, a lot of them were Christians. Copernicus was was a Polish Catholic. Galileo was a, an Italian Catholic. Johannes Kepler was a Lutheran, turned Catholic, but that's for other reasons. Um, but they were Christians, and and even today, a lot of scientists are still Christians. So. Yeah, you know, there's, sure. there's not, the, but the, the point is, though, that um, these early scientific revolutions caused some difficulties to the authority of the church. And one of the attempts to kind of like um, make up for it was a, a sort of a field of natural theology. William Paley, some other people tried this idea that this like, it's like reading two books. There's God's world and there's God's word. Um, and, and so, so then, you know, they say, well, we, we, scientists read the book of God's world and theologians read the book of God's word. And that's okay. That's not too bad. But the trouble is as text, God's world doesn't deliver very much. Like Paul says in Romans, you can know about deity and you can know about his infinite power, but it's kind of like the Genesis one version of God. He's way out there. And he's so out there, you don't really get a beat on him. So it's like, there's not much theology there, in other words. Um, Our theology is revealed, and it's revealed in the scriptures, the word of God, in in the language of men. And so that's the proper work of theology is to uh, interpret, interpret God words. Um, Hermeneutics, that word that we started with, you know, theology is hermeneutics. That's what it's about. It's about the interpretation of the text. I, have you ever had as a pastor somebody say, well, pastor, that's just a matter of interpretation? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I like to say it's all a matter of interpretation. 
Yeah, <laughs> whenever, we whenever you have a text, it's a matter of interpretation. Like in our country, you know, we don't have a king. We don't. We some. We think we have a dictator, but but we don't have a king. We 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 have a constitution. That's 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 who's in charge of this country. The constitution. We actually have our leaders pledge allegiance to the constitution. I hope I hope they've read it. I, I'm I'm suspicious that many of them don't even know what's in it. <laughs> but we have a Supreme Court to interpret to do hermeneutics on the Constitution. And if you ever sit down with like a constitutional lawyer or something like that, they have a lot in common with us theologians because we do the same thing. We interpret text accor- yeah. according to uh, its literal sense, according to its historic context. Uh, you know, and and you can't. Um, rewrite the text. You can't bend the words to mean something else. And you have to figure out what the significance is. How, how, how does it work today? So we got this like 300 year old constitution and it's got to work today in the 21st century. So kind of the same, same game, if you will. Right. It, it's really interesting that so many Christian lawyers start to dabble in the field of apologetics. <laughs> well, I think it's a natural, but it's yeah, a natural. It you know, like our friend Craig Parton, who's written some really good books. He's one that I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah. But, but see, he loves it, and he's naturally drawn to it because it's really the same skill set. And, and it's just a different, it's a different text, but it's the same skill set. Uh, lawyers are really good her- hermeneutics people because they really understand uh, the way hermeneutics works. Now, obviously, some lawyers kind of bend things for their clients. But the nice thing about constitutional law is you don't really have a client. You're, you're, just, you're just measuring the law against the... You're measuring the particular case against the Constitution. Mm. That's all you're doing. Right. Uh, and, you know, so we've had some, a lot of discussion. Uh, yeah, I wish, frankly, like with the uh, nomination process... Like we just went through, I wish they would ask these guys and girls, the women too, women justices. I wish they would ask our nominees more about their hermeneutics, because because that's really the question. What's your hermeneutics? How do you how do you read this text? Yeah, and isn't that really what we hear about when when we uh, hear that one has a strict interpretation of the Constitution that. Uh, they they try to read it in the voice of those who penned it. Right, and yeah. and even even there, there's some question because uh, can you bring in extra constitutional evidence, the Federalist Papers or the private writings of Thomas Jefferson or things like that? Uh, that's a good question. That's that's a little bit like asking when you're interpreting the Bible. Can you bring in extra biblical sources? Can you look right. at the um, the the stuff, the contemporary stuff. Can you look at the contemporary literature in the New Testament, or can you look at the contemporary literature in the Old Testament? Is that valid, or is this just isolated and unique? But those are hermeneutical questions. Those are really interesting, interesting questions. And well, it is, and, and it kind of it kind of fits into the whole topic that we're talking about because, you know, now in the last gosh, what, 20, 30 years, all of a sudden the, the Supreme Court, certain people and, and whatnot are saying, well, we need to look at uh, global um, uh, law and, and look at the Constitution through the lens of uh, Norwegian law or Scandinavian law or, you know, whatever. And, and it's almost as though we're saying, well, we've got to interpret the Bible through non-Christian 
non-Christian sources also. Well, not so much non-Christian So It depends what you're doing. Um, you know, like the Constitution is built on prior stuff, the Magna Carta, sure. you know, yeah. the, and then the concepts of the French Revolution, especially John Locke and others. You know, So there's stuff. <clears throat> the question is, how relevant is that to interpreting the Constitution? Might be pretty relevant. But here's the here's the thing when when they do that is we need to interpret the Constitution according to Scandinavian law. That's a little bit like saying we need to interpret the Bible according to the ba- Bhagavad Gita. Right. You know, right. it's like mm, uh, I don't think so, <laughs> uh, because you know these these are completely different texts about different gods, really. So uh, there's there's just nothing to say. I want to I want to float an analogy by you, okay? And then we'll pick it up next time. But right. for the moment, but I've been thinking about this whole business of hermeneutics and text interpretation and what we're doing, uh, just, and not just pastors, but, but every, every baptized believer is a theologian in the sense that every Christian is interpreting the, the text of Scripture um, to their neighbor. You know, when you tell somebody about Christ, when you tell somebody the gospel, when you speak about your faith, you, you are interpreting biblical text. And when they ask you, where do you get this from and how do you know this? And you guide them through the scriptures, like say Philip did the Ethiopian, you're a theologian, you're interpreting the text. See, so I think it's really important uh, for pastors to teach their people how to interpret the Bible. You know, not just tell them what the Bible says or to give them like, like uh, just, you know, a little handbook of answers, but to teach them how to read the Bible, because all theology is ultimately interpretation of the text. That's what theology is. Let me shoot an analogy by you. Tell me what you think of this. So so theology, I I like to view theology, and I don't mean to diminish theology's importance, but but this is this is the, this is the one that seems to work, and I've tried it on a bunch of people, and 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 yeah, I know, like in children's sermons, people people don't get analogies, but I'm going to try anyway, okay? And don't push it over the cliff. Uh, well, well, we'll just we'll just start with understanding that analogies always break down. Yeah, they have a point of comparison, like parables. Okay, right. so but anyway, think of theology as like a soccer game. Okay. I don't like soccer, but it's kind of global and universal. A lot of people do. So soccer game. So a soccer game is played on a soccer field and the field has boundary lines drawn around it. Big rectangle, right? So the game goes on inside the boundary lines and the boundary lines define what the field is. Okay. Now, if you make the field too small, then you can't play the game. Players crash into each other. You just don't have a good game. It's like, it's like arena football. <laughs> it's too small. You need a bigger field. Um, if, the, if there are no boundary lines and you're just out in an open meadow playing soccer, you don't have much of a game because this thing could like, go into the next county. Uh, it, it's just, you, know, it, you don't have a game without boundary lines. So I, doctrine, doctrine, dogma, these, these distilled things that the church comes up with that are this, like our creed, the Apostles, the Athanasian, the Nicene Creed, or the Book of Concord, our, our confessions. Those are the boundary lines around the soccer field. You can't cross those. If you cross those, you're out of bounds, and they put the flag up and give, okay. the, ball, give the ball to the other team. Or, you know, if you push somebody out of bounds, they're out of bounds. You can't play out there. you got to come back in the field. So if, if in our theology we cross a boundary 
then then the the doctrine gets us back onto the field. So, like, if whatever you'd say and do, if you deny the Trinity and unity and the unity and Trinity, you got to get back on the field. If you deny the two natures of Christ, you got to get back on the field. You know, if you try, if you deny Christ and His saving work for the world, you get back on the field because you you're you're off the you're off the reservation. But think about doctrine as as boundary lines. But see, one of the things that I see is if that field is too small, and if we keep constricting the field, adding more and more doctrine, then you can't play the game anymore. You can't you can't think, you can't discuss, you can't debate. And see, that's why I think the church is exceedingly conservative at dogmatizing stuff. Because the more you say dogmatically, the more doctrine you have, the fewer people will agree with you, you know? And so the field gets smaller, and so the number of players that can fit on the field gets smaller. Mm. See, sects and, and, and sects always have more uh, doctrinal rules than the church Catholic. The church Catholic to the outsider looks a little loosey-goosey at times. And, and so if you kind of look, 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 look at the creed, for example, like the Nicene Creed, I mean, that's kind of the, that's the boundary lines of the, the early church. As long as you stayed inside those boundary lines, you could kind of say all kinds of stuff like Augustine did or any of these guys. But stay inside that boundary line. If you stepped out like Arius did, where he makes Christ something less than God the Father, you're out of bounds. Right. So th there was the fear in Luther's day when he translated the Bible into German. You know, putting, putting the Bible into the hands of the common man, you're, you're going to have all these different interpretations. And it was very clear that Luther and, and those like him believe that scripture was not of private interpretation, that there were boundaries here, you know, that, that you, you couldn't just run amok with this uh, because you end up disproving the Christian faith with the Bible. Well, that's true, but, but so, look, look, know, at, the, look at what there, Luther did, though. Look at what There Luther, are principles that stay within the boundaries, is what I'm saying. Uh, yeah, but Luther didn't go that way, and the Lutheran church didn't go that way, ever. They didn't say, this is the correct interpretation of the Bible. This is, you know, they didn't give they didn't give a set of rules of how to interpret the Bible. Uh, if you read Luther's little paragraph introductions to each of the books of the Bible and the Apocrypha, I might add. Uh, by the way, the one to Romans is excellent. His preface his, his preface introduction to Romans is much better than his Romans notes from 1516. <laughs> but but if you if you read that, what what does he do? And you can still find that in the old Concordia Study Bible, they have excerpts from Luther on each book of the Bible, and they just get it from that. His, when the Bible, when he finally translated it, put it in the hands of the people, um, it came with these little, these little paragraph introductions to each book. But read each book, introduction. He tells them how to find Christ. He doesn't tell them how to, he doesn't give them a bunch of rules for interpretation so they spit out the right answer. He tells them how to find Christ. And, and that's how he has the confidence that he can turn this book, this revelation of God, over to people, some of whom could barely read, but he could turn it over to them with the confidence that as long as they stayed inside the boundaries of the creeds of the church and the catechism, they were fine. It'd be okay. There's no problem. Right. That's what I was saying. Okay, good. 
<laughs> but he didn't give them formulas. You see, here's no, no, what, no, 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 no. Here's what I'm no, thinking. No. We we got to be really careful of of over dogmatizing, because not everything in the Bible is doctrine. It may be doctrine all, but it's not doctrine. Okay, so we don't have a doctrine, for example, of the ever virginity of Mary, because it's not really in the Bible. You might conclude that, you might think about that, but it's really a matter of interpretation, right? And there's lots of stuff like that. The Bible is not a collection of, of doctrines, and it's not a source book for bash passages and proof texts. The Bible is the revelation of God working as creator and redeemer uh, to save the world in Christ. And, and these doctrines are just some places along that you have to stay inside in order to be where the Bible is speaking. You know, in other words, you can't invent a God. <laughs> you know, you got to speak of the God of the Bible. Um, and, and you can't reinvent Jesus. You, you got to deal with Jesus, true God and true man. So there, there are these boundary lines. But if you have too many doctrines, then you make the field too small and only a handful of players will fit on the field. And, and you'll be condemning everybody left right. and right, you see. Right. So this, this I, is one I of would the say... Reasons, this, this is one of the reasons that I went past Calvinism to Lutheranism on my journey. Uh, because the Calvinists had everything so buttoned up that God became kind of oppressive. But in Lutheranism, there was a sense of mystery, the sense of wonder, the sense that... God doesn't necessarily play by the rules that we set forth. <laughs> well, you, I, I think you're right. I've never like had the the existential experience of being a Calvinist. Um, Ted and I just reviewed a Calvinist-oriented movie, The Witch, uh, which is in part about Calvinism. Um, but you're right. It's a tight, systematic doctrine. And, and therefore, if one little piece of that doctrine falls, the whole thing collapses because it's, it's like a very intricate, it's like a Rube Goldberg machine. Right. Every, every piece has to kind of be tied to the other piece. The, the Lutheran approach was the old John of Damascus approach, um, and that was to collect lotzi of doctrine. So you just had a locus on baptism, a locus on original sin, a locus on this, a locus on that. Um, Chemnitz still does that. He, he takes Melanchthon's Lotzi and he kind of adds his own two, two cents to it, but he still stays within the locus mm -hmm. uh, method. But in that collection, you don't have one thing leading to another thing leading to another thing. You just have, this, I, I like to think of it as just a, a, a bunch of planets orbiting around a sun, and the central article is Christ. See, and, and so Christ is at the center of all doctrine and at the center of every article of doctrine. And so as long as you keep Christ at the center, things will be okay. There may be, you know, there may right. be some questions and some dispute, you know, like the Christian church has various ways to look at original sin. Um, and, you know, we have, we have our Western Catholic Augustinian, you know, way of looking at it. But as long as you keep Christ at the center, there's enough room to to think and to discuss. Because if you don't do that, if you just button down every single little conclusion, then you, you're you're actually worse off than the papal church was. Because the papal church basically said, you know, don't read the Bible. We'll tell you what to think and believe. So, 
I would say that Lutheranism is the AK-47 of theology. It has very loose tolerances. You can drag it through the mud, and it still works. <laughs> Using the gun, the gun analogy. <laughs> the gun analogy. I'm Let's see to, where that one breaks down. I'm going to have some... to think about that. But, but one, <laughs> one of the things that I think the Reformation did was it opened up the playing field again. Now, of course, there's always risk in that because somebody's going to misinterpret. And, but I think the interpretation of any text stands or falls on the text itself. You know, the rules of grammar and syntax and definition, and if we can't discuss them and we can't look at various legitimate ways to understand them, not only in terms of the meaning of their words, but also their reference and their theological significance, then I then we've ceased to do theology. Then then right. we're just kind of like museum curators, uh, with a bunch of sort of glass enclosed doctrines that we can admire and and you know keep clean and stuff. But it's really it's no longer the game. Uh, it's like everybody becomes a referee then. So we're just blowing whistles and and issuing yellow cards and red cards. Yeah. But there's actually no game going on, and that's too bad because. Uh, the business is to proclaim the wonders, the splendors of him who called us out of darkness into his marv marvelous light. And uh, I'll tell you one thing that we need in our scientific age is we need to put God back into his creation because he seems to have been forgotten. Hmm. So... Yeah, I know. I know we're over time and everything. We're over time, and I, I, I think just, I think we're going to call it a day here because yeah, I, I'm. I, I just tired. really want to say this. I am glad that there is a sense of mystery, uh, a, a sense of not having to have all the answers. I I actually sometimes frolic in the idea of saying I don't know, and and I don't know no is a very humble thing. There, there is no answer to a lot of questions. How is it the body and blood of Christ? I don't know. Yeah. You know. Well, you but, do, you do know. Uh, Christ told you. Yeah, but, but, <laughs> how, how is it? Oh, you don't, know, don't, don't, don't ask that. See, question. that's what I'm saying. Don't I don't you. know. It, you know, you know if that question had never been it. asked, I, I'd that's have good. more, I'd have more shelf space in my library. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hey, one last note. Be sure to vote. Be sure to vote. Somebody's. Yeah. I gotta let somebody. Someone's in. at the door. Yeah, I don't know. Let me see. The views and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the person who is speaking. All words should be interpreted in their plain and literal sense. No doctrines of the Church Catholic were harmed in the making of this episode. Rebroadcast, retransmission, repurposing, reflecting, or any other use of this program without the express written consent of the manly doctors of divinity is strongly encouraged. Your mileage may vary, void where prohibited by law. Follow us and love us on Facebook. Subscribe to us on our feed, uh, on iTunes, on Google Play, on Stitcher. Visit our website for the full archive of our shows at godwhispers.org. Send us your comments, your criticisms, your threats, and hate mail. Whatever you want to send us at godwhispers at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Think boldly and trust Christ even more boldly. Take her easy, dude.